Hey there, listeners. This is Drew Johnson from the Biblical Mind Podcast. I'm also the director of the Center for Hebraic Thought, and it's that time of year where we shamelessly come to you and ask for money. The Center for Hebraic Thought actually does a lot of things. You may only know us through this podcast, but we also publish weekly articles from scholars and experts uh, translating the fruits of biblical thinking into all kinds of practical issues for daily life. Uh, We put on events, we do workshops training uh, pastors, pastoral staff, church leaders on how to think uh, alongside the biblical authors. We create videos, we have this podcast. And the truth is, we need your help to do these things. If every one of you listeners just gave $100, we could actually cover our costs for the year. Obviously, not everybody can give $100, but that's what it would take to cover our operating costs for the year. Now, that might sound like a lot of money, but we actually do a lot of things between the Center for Hebraic Thought and the Biblical Mind. We have a lot of people that work on every episode, from the graphic artist to the person who creates the show notes to the audio editor uh, to the person who schedules the interviews with all of our special guests. It takes a village to raise a podcast episode, much less a weekly episode. And so we're asking you at the end of this year, you can give to us. It's tax deductible, which means the bigger the gift, the bigger the tax deduction. You can go to hebraicthought.org slash give. That's hebraic, H-E-B-R-A-I-C, thought.org slash give. And you can give a donation of any size from $1 to $100 and beyond. You can give us a horse, a sheep, a bag of hay, a used car. No, I'm just kidding. We actually prefer cash, but you can do that at hebraicthought.org slash give. And now to our episode. This is the Biblical Mind Podcast. Produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of scripture. A lot of folks, we kind of just glaze over when we read. And places, people, places, and things become... Um, like ornamental to the story as opposed to intentional. And I think if we start paying attention to some of the people, places, and things, people might get really interested in something that feels random, but it's Mm. those rabbit trails that keep our connection with God fresh because we're going back to the text going, wait a minute, I didn't notice that the first time. Oh, wait, that happens in another place, or that's like Jacob's story, or you know, all these things start firing in your brain, and then you realize once again, wow, he there has to be a God. Like the, this cannot be by accident. This has to be one unified, cohesive story. And I want to look at it again that way. Yeah, I mean, I find that this uh, rereading and rereading, uh, like it begins to light up like a Christmas tree, um, especially when you follow certain themes. Where like, I like what, how you said it seems like some random uh, things that are thrown in there. Then you say, oh, no, contrario, frere, that's not random. Wait, <laughs> hold that one in your mind because it's going to yeah. come up again. Yeah, and that 
I think that gets people excited about the biblical text when you can help them see those things as well. Um, I'm reading right now Mortimer Adler's How to Read a Book. I don't know if you've ever read I mm-hmm. It's a classic that I had never read. And so I finally picked it up and started reading it. Um, and he talks about pre-reading or screening like that, that you can, that it's those facts, the what you call the ornamental aspects of the text, uh, that they're not ornamental at all. But it's a lot of that that throws people off. Like I feel like once you've hit the fourth place name that they've never heard of and they don't know where it's at, <laughs> people just kind of like start yeah. skipping uh, or skimming. So do you have any process that when you teach people that you help them get some of those facts under their belt uh, to, to help them not trip up so much on the little things? Yeah, I mean, a good example right now, Drew, would be Kate, my my son Caleb is nine, and he is just the kindest human being on the planet. And he's the spirit of God. It has to be the spirit because it hasn't been anything else has really drawn him to the scriptures. And hmm. he is into the book of Acts because oh. a lot of people go to jail. That's what he told me. <laughs> Total boy, you know, he's like, mommy, tons of people go to jail in <laughs> this book. awesome. You know, and I'm like, yeah, and they also get free. Let's talk about free, like right. how, what Jesus does and the power of his spirit. But I will say that getting him into Acts chapter 14 or 13, where he's like, derby, iconium, like who's Barnabas? So things like that. I think sometimes kids show us exactly what happens to us in adult life. So what he's tripping over verbally, I can read and spell and probably say, but I don't care. Right. So at least he's still at the point now where he has enough interest to go, is this a person? Is this a place? Right. Where is this? And at his age, Drew, what I'm encouraging him with is, this is a place far away that's hard to pronounce, but it it was really important because it's a journey, right? And it's just like us going on our trip to Colorado and the route we took and how important it was on timing. And so, but I think once we get to the adult level, we're like, yada, yada, yada. It has a place, 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 people, people, people. I don't know who they were, probably doesn't matter. And then we find out later, oh, wait, that was like the key to unlocking this entire message. Hmm. So I think um, I, I had written down before we got on the call today, just to talk about how my son has really impacted how I read and it's now become a chicken in the egg. I don't know who's influencing more mm. now because he'll say things like a lot of people go to jail in this book. And I'm like, you're exactly right. What, what if we, you know, so the other day I said, let's, let's look up every story in this that has them go to jail and let's just compare the stories. What happens in some of them? What happens? Mm. What did you learn about God? And so I think when we do those same things and have that childlike interest and curiosity, it can really, you know, really propel us to get closer to God. Yeah. I, children, it's, it's also when you teach your children how to spell and to write, um, and that's when you finally realize that you actually don't know why words are spelled the way they are. Because <laughs> you start out, we're going, oh, it's an I-G-H-T word. It's one of those. And mm-hmm. and then after you hit the fourth violation of the rule, you're like, I don't know why it's spelled that way. Just memorize it. That's uh-huh. what we had to do, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. But I think Caleb has told me, mommy, you wouldn't do really good in fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> we had to do long division, and I was like, ooh, I got to dig for that. Let's Boy, watch a howdy. YouTube video. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's one of the beauties of having children is you actually get to relearn what you uh, what you learned a long time ago, right? Um, but, you know, in my Bible classes in college uh, that I teach, 
I, you know, I have non-Christians in there all the time and I try to empower them and say like, look, if you've never read this text before, you're actually going to have some of the best questions in the room because you're going to see it with the freshest eyes and you're going to be on asking honest questions. Like, why did they do that? Why does, why does God not know what's going on here? Why, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found that actually reading the biblical text with non-believers or people who've never really encountered the text before helps me to see it with fresh eyes as well and ask some of the right questions and, uh, yeah, who, who's influencing whom becomes lost in the mix at some point. Um, so how did you get interested in all of it? How did you in, in, end up being a, a Bible storyteller and writer and, I'm going to use the word carefully, influ- influencer on this front? <laughs> influencer. Oh. You know, when I was 16, I came to faith, and I remember going to the youth pastor at our church at the time and telling him, I am not a youth group girl. I'm not going to camp. I don't want to play no games. I do not know the difference between Moses and Abraham. Like, Mm. where does a sister start if they don't know anything about the Bible and want to pursue Christ? And he said, we have a really Southern lady with really Southern hair. She teaches a Sunday school class here. It's for adults only. It's really big. It's big enough to where you could slip into the back and no one would notice you. And it was Beth Moore's Sunday school class Uh. at Houston's First Baptist Church. And there were 600 adults in there every Sunday morning. So as a 17-year-old, I was slipping into the back and listening to her. I didn't know who she was. It really didn't matter to me. But she had these front and back handouts that she would give and fill in the blanks and then cite all of her sources. And I would take those home, Drew, and be like, this is so interesting. And then I would go and look up the books she was referencing. And by the time I went to college, being under her teaching for two years, I just saw someone who was really funny telling personal stories. Mm. So that kept me engaged. And then I also really enjoyed the way she enjoyed the Bible. Mm. I was like, what, what version is she reading? She is very (laughs) enthusiastic about this. And so it really goes back to that. I was telling someone two nights ago on my front patio, I'm doing the same thing that I was doing 25 years ago in her class. It's like, I keep my notes hole punch them or put them somewhere in my digital assets, you know, and reread them and study them. And I'm still doing that all these years later. Hmm. Yeah, that enthusiasm for the biblical text. And of course, what I found, because I, you know, became a Christian when I was about 19 and again, read the biblical text for the very first time with same, same, same situation. And, um, the, and I would hear people who would talk about the biblical text, but then I would go read it and go, okay, they seem to be seeing things in here that I'm not noticing. And it's the enthusiasm comes because you're usually seeing how it's all connected and you're bringing Deuteronomy into your discussion of Paul's epistles. And, you know, <laughs> you can see, you know, that that fine line between, you know, yarn and note cards on a cork board and, you know, conspiracy thinking and actually seeing <laughs> real patterns that are in there. Um, yeah. But I that, mean, that, that, it's an infectious enthusiasm, though. It really is. And it's lasted all this while. And I think that I pray for holy curiosity a lot in my personal life. I pray it for all the people that I'm privileged to serve in any capacity, just that something that I say or write would inspire holy curiosity that takes someone back to a story and goes, I'm not sure she's right about that, or that's Mm -hmm. a very interesting reading, or I've never thought about it that way, or where did this come from? And I think things leveled up for me after I graduated from Dallas Seminary, getting into intertextuality and finding a whole field of study that I didn't even know existed. I found out way too late 
And then that's when I thought, this is really what I want to, I want to learn from the folks who are specializing in this and just read a ton of books. You know, Riken has been really helpful and Richard B. Hayes and Richard Bauckham. And a lot of those guys have influenced a lot of what I'm doing. The Richards. Um, Yeah. So talk about that for a second, going to Dallas Seminary, because I, I, I think uh, I, cause I was a pastor in a church that had a lot of older folks, uh, you know, people in, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, and they had like inductive Bible study. They, I learned so much from them about the Bible. They knew the Bible inside and out and, and uh, would very politely shame me about things I didn't understand when I just preached on them. And they would, you know, they'd tell, they would show me like where I'd made a mistake in the, the politest way possible sometimes. Um, but also what I've come to realize is they had a very factional knowledge of, of scripture um, and didn't always have the kind of like long, broad story of scripture and, and plugged in. So what was your experience at Dallas, which is, is really known for teaching people on how to get into the nitty gritty of scripture? Mm-hmm. Um, and then is that, what, is that what left you hankering for the, the kind of more literary views or mm-hmm. how did that story work out for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that they uh, really cultivate inquisitive Bible readers. So I asked a ton of questions of the text. I'm not sure I let the text ask a lot of questions of me, Mm. and I'm still learning how to do that. And then I felt as though maybe reading the Bible inspirationally, meaning, wow, this word was for me, and I needed this today, and this is just what I needed to hear. That definitely wasn't something I experienced personally when I was there. But I do feel like what I've fallen into is imaginative reading, where I'm trying to put myself in the story, not as if I'm a part of the story, but if I were there, what would it feel like, smell like? What happened next? What, mm-hmm. you know, what did their body language say? You know, how did this play out in their relationship later? Did they ever talk again? You know? Mm. So I think that um it just it's just how my brain works to a fault and maybe sometimes to a strength. Um what is happening in this story and how does this story connect and why was it placed there? So I still am using all those inquisitive tools they taught me and I'm so grateful. And I think I felt some more freedom to go, I just don't know. And it might be fun to imagine and to think about how that might impact our interpretation. And it made me a little bit more free and loose to say, I'm not really sure. Right. And there could be a couple different ways of looking at this. We may not find out until we get to glory. I feel pretty comfortable saying this might be it. And if it is, here's how we need to think about it and apply it to our own lives, as opposed to um, a more rigid view of there's really only one correct interpretation. And mm. I'm like, maybe, I, maybe, I hope, and I, but I hope you're the one who got it right. <laughs> <laughs> so the one yeah. the one way that's right I've learned because what if we're wrong? So I think that there is um, something really beneficial to get all three types of readers involved in a conversation when we're studying so that we can see things from different angles. Well, I can tell you right now, when you're teaching undergraduates a Bible, the one thing they hate to hear a professor say is like, yeah, I don't really know. Or I used to think that, but I don't really know anymore. I'm, I'm still thinking about it, right? And they really want you to have the answer, Johnny, on the spot. Mm-hmm. Um, technically, we're getting paid to know things, uh, but actually, I think <laughs> we're getting paid to uh, transform people. So, mm. um, so I wonder, the as you 
developed your thinking of scripture? Because I'm sure I'm gonna, I'm just gonna guess that as you started communicating what you were learning from scripture, people were probably saying to th- things to you like, "I've never really heard anybody talk about these passages that way." Um, so, what do you think? It, you know, we don't have to point fingers at the church because you know uh, everybody's trying their best in many ways. But what do you think was missing in the traditional Bible studies that you were encountering? Of course, you came through Beth Moore, so she's doing kind of her own. She's doing her own innovative thing as well. But what what do you see as uh, missing in some of those uh, old school Bible studies? Yeah, I mean, I really I don't want to throw any shade toward them because it it really it's so it was so pivotal in my own personal life. So mm-hmm. it's really helped me. I would just say I needed a more well-rounded view. And um, I would say one of the hangups is when we study by book, chapter, or verse, which is beautiful and I love it and I do it. So I'm not putting it down. If that is the only way mm-hmm. it, beca- it that is why a lot of people think of the Bible as a roadmap or a checklist or a, um, I'm trying to think of the other examples that make me feel a little a manual. That's right. Yeah. An instruction manual. It makes me feel a little uncomfortable because there are propositional truths that should be instructive that we should follow. So I don't want to say, no, don't do it that way. But I also don't want to lose the fact that God is an artistic genius. Like Mm -hmm. this is a literary masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Who who can write something over thousands of years by all these different authors and make it cohesive? How? Right. I mean, sometimes I think we we miss just um appreciating the artistic brilliance because we're so zoned in on something that we need to zoom out a little bit mm-hmm. and go, okay, why is Jacob important in in how does he show up even in the New Testament? Mm-hmm. How, so I think some of that intertextuality has really helped me um, step back and go, I've never thought about that all the trees are connected or right. that all the mountains are connected or that right. the imagery um, could mean something to the story. Yeah, I, I think that because I read the Old Testament every semester with my students. And so obviously I'm seeing, I'm, I've learned things every semester alongside them, or they point out things that I've never noticed. Um, I, and I make bigger claims. Like it's, it's the most liter it's the greatest literary masterpiece in the history of humanity. Uh, certainly in, in ancient times, uh, better than anything Homer wrote. I mean, Homer, like it's all impressive, but it, it's doing things that other texts can't do because it's using various authors in various ways. And it's not like blandly interesting. It's like, uh, the riveting, riveting. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's like mind blowing every time. And you go, what? Yeah. I've read this 10 billion times. It was in my reading plan for five years. How, yeah. how did I miss this one little detail? And, um, you know, for me, it was, I was reading, uh, Jonathan Pennington's uh, mm. Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing the second time. And you heard me tell him when I got to meet oh, him yeah, last yeah, year. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I was like, what? I loved your book. I've read it twice. But I remember, it, I because I keep dates on everything that I read, it was December of 2020, and I was in Broken Bow reading his book. And by the time you get to like Broken page, Bow, Oklahoma? Yeah. I Okay. I know. <laughs> no, it's sorry. only four hours away from Dallas. I'm no, sorry. I'm from it's, Tulsa, so I know Broken Arrow and Broken yeah. Bow and no yeah. water. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, it's where people go to vacation when they're just really? trying to get out of okay, Dallas. That must be okay. That that's new on me. Okay, sorry, the total sidetrack. <laughs> so, do you remember that you were reading it in December of twenty twenty? Yeah, and he talked. He was the first person to point out to me that mountains um, are a symbol in the scriptures, mm. and he just very casually, you know, he said look at the mountains in Matthew. Jesus is tempted on a mountain and transfigured on a mountain, gives his most famous sermon on a mountain, and he commissions his disciples on a mountain. And I remember right. being like, what? <laughs> I didn't see this the first time I read this yeah. commentary. And look at it, Drew. I mean, like every single thing is underlined and circled. But when he said there is an implicit figural connection between mm-hmm. these mountains, um, you know, he was focused on Moses and Jesus, but right. I just... That moment set me on a course for the next 18 months to look up every single mountain in the Bible and to go, what? I didn't even notice that there are so many of them in there. So I think that that can really help folks follow a rabbit trail through the scriptures. And maybe that's missing in our work, our church work. Maybe that's missing in the way that we teach our students about the Bible is making connections outside of a particular verse, chapter, or book. Yeah. I, I remember vividly uh, a friend of mine uh, who did my PhD with him. I saw him at SBL, uh, Society of Biblical Literature, I don't know, a few years ago. I said, what are you working on? He goes, I'm working on a book on trees in the Bible. And my first reaction was, well, that sounds horribly boring. <laughs> no, I read, then, who is it? Who and, wrote it? Well, he, he, hasn't, he hasn't finished it yet. I, I have a feeling it will be like the book on trees when he puts it out because okay. uh, he's that kind of a guy. But um uh, the, and other people have written on it as well, but it, he just very quickly gave me the elevator pitch for trees. And I was like, Oh, why, how could I foolishly think trees didn't have this kind of central importance? And I noticed you have a whole book, uh, on the storyline of trees throughout scripture as well. Uh, yeah. And, Bible and, project did like a six part video series at the beginning of this year that really influenced part of my writing. But yeah, I mean, I read a ton of books and monographs on trees and about nerded out until my head exploded. Yeah. And, and and then again, you know, as soon as he gave me the elevator pitch, now as I'm reading scripture, I can't help but see trees everywhere, right? And the use of branches and uh, yes, all kinds vines. of tree metaphors. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's been really cool, Drew, is when, when I came to my family and said, hey, look, I'm thinking about saying yes to this opportunity to write this six a Bible study series called The Storyline. It's all about mountains and valleys in the Bible and trees and stones and archetypes of characters. And I essentially was trying to recruit my eight-year-old and say, mommy's going to be busy on Saturdays a lot. The door is going to be closed. This is going to be hard on the whole family. We have to be really bought in. And he left the table. He was like, awesome. That sounds cool. And he left the table and he came back, Drew, with a post-it note that I have that's framed. And he he, he was like, you should totally do boats. Boats are everywhere. You know, Noah was on a boat and then Jesus was on a boat and then Peter had that boat situation. And I was like, we should do boats. So I think that um, once you see one thing and now he's the kind of kid who nudges me in church when we read a psalm that has the word mountain in it, Mm. you know, and now if we sing a song about God on the mountain or meeting us in the valley, he's nudging me. And I'm like, that's the point, I think, of God's artistic brilliance is And I teach fourth and fifth graders Sunday school class at our church. 
And one of, I was talking about Jacob and Jesus and all these parallels. And she was like, why did God do it this way? And I was like, so that we would notice. It's so cool. Right. So that that's the answer so that we would notice and we would pay attention. Um, but I think, again, I, I'm not all, I don't talk about my kid a whole lot on podcasts, but he really has helped shape and vision the studies because he gets it. I think he loves you and has a plan for your life. <laughs> Probably, I, I mean, I don't know why you haven't brought up the, the book on jail yet, but it uh, <laughs> seems like the, jails are hard, harder in the Old Testament than the uh, New Testament. There's <laughs> yeah. a lot more jails going on, although there was a big jail culture in the Old Testament, uh, just, just <laughs> not in Israel. Um, yeah, and, and I think, again, once you take that single thread, well, here, let me back up and ask this question, because I did some of my doctoral work on the transfiguration in Mark's gospel. Uh, and and it, there is a cheat when you're reading the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and you're reading the Gospels. Like you can see, they're using very clearly the Mount Sinai language from the Septuagint, and and these uh, these mountaintop moments, even the, the this particular language of the clouds opening and departing and stuff. Um, so it's a little bit of a cheat, but you can figure this all out in the English as well, or any translation. But uh, back up a little bit because this is the part that I think a lot of people conflate too quickly. There's the actual event, right, where things happen on a mountain. The, the people were actually at the foot of Mount Sinai, I believe, um, and they were actually seeing these things unfold and having real reactions to them uh, so that every mountain, those people and their children, actually their children because those people all died, <laughs> died in the wilderness, but from that point on, mountains are kind of scarred into their psyche in terrifying and wonderful ways, right? It's the place where God made a treaty with us, but also it's kind of where we sealed our own, our doom. Um, mm -hmm. And then that's the the thing that happened. And then there's the story about the mountains as well, right? And so I wonder what you think about that interplay between, you know, like I love John's addendum. Uh, there are many things that Jesus did that I could have written about, but I wrote these things, you know, in this mm -hmm. or he doesn't say in this order, but I wrote these things and put them in this kind of package so that you mm -hmm. might trust uh, in Jesus. So do you, do you think that, um, uh, let's see, how can I put this politely? Maybe the biblical authors are just like, you know, they just love mountains <laughs> or, I mean, and, and this is a real, this is a real issue because, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've been to Israel, but like mountains and valleys is a central hill country thing, which means you're in Judah and Samaria, mm -hmm. but not necessarily in Jezreel. And I mean, even Har Megiddo uh, mm -hmm. or what's called Armageddon later is mm -hmm. it's a city it's in the shape of a mountain because it's been destroyed yes. so many times. Right. But it's not. Um, but yeah, is there like a mountain shaped culture Mount, Mountophilic. I don't know what you would call these people. It's <laughs> awesome. Like I'm like, adding what, it to the dictionary. Yeah. What do you What do you suppose? And feel free to just speculate wildly here. You're the one who's thought about it as to why mountains are playing such an important role. Because the other question is like, is God using mountains in this special way, or is it just that the people who are writing these texts are Mountophilic? I don't. We should come up with a better name than that. Mountophilic. I love yeah. it so much. Gotta Drew. find a Latin name for it. Well, I've never thought about this question. I think the answer would be both and. Okay. I do think that God um, intentionally went, you know, uh, the perfect place for this would be a mountain because of everything I've done before. 
God, God like this, the event coordinator, he's you know, yeah. he's like, you know what would really make this moment pop? Let's, Seriously, let's put it on a mountain. I, but I kind of do though, Drew. I'm not gonna lie. No, no, that I, his, I'm with you. The way that you we develop stories in our own lives or movie franchises, we really get into. You know, I think of someone like Star Wars, where something happens in movie seven or eight, and you're like, no way, that is a throwback mm. to movie one. And if you knew, and if you knew that, you know, people really nerd out about that kind of stuff, but it makes the franchise so fun for those who can see the echoes and see the connections between all the different movies. And um, it feels so intentional by the directors, the people who are putting the story together. I do think that that is present in the text. I do think he's really intentional. And I also think if the authors were more familiar with all of these symbols in a symb- symbolic driven world that maybe we don't get because it's not so much for us. Mm. And so I think it was probably both and, and I think it would help us to look at each story as a unit and to study it the way I learned to, to go really deep and zone in and to see what it means for those people, but also to take a wider view and go, why would it does it connect to anything else and why would it and should i learn anything from these connections yeah and and even the you know lots of people have made the the connections between Mountains and coming cl- that mountains allow you to get closer to the heavens, and of course, in places like the Euphrates, uh, where there are no mountains, they build mountains. They build ziggurats, and in the Nile, there are no mountains, so they build mountains uh, and pyramids uh, in some ways. Which you know, may- maybe that's what's going on. It's certainly, something like that is going on. But uh, have you have you been to Jerusalem? I assume. Mm-hmm. Have you actually gotten to go up on the Temple Mount? itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things I always point out to my students is when you're on the Temple Mount, like on um, what is now the, the Dome of the Rock and uh, Al-Aqsa mm-hmm. Mosque up there, you can actually spin around in 360 degrees and you'll instantly notice that te- technically you're on uh, you know, Mount Zion, on the old city of Jerusalem, or Mount Moriah, I'm sorry. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you're also surrounded by a bunch of mountains that are all taller than, like three times taller than, it's actually a short hill surrounded by a bunch of taller hills. Yeah. And I wonder if you think that there's, like, I always think like, is that a critique of the high places? Like, because Solomon Mm -hmm. builds altars on the next hill over on the Mount of Olives. Yeah, he does. For human sacrifice to Moloch, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So do do you think Jerusalem itself, the fact that it's on a mountain, but it's, but it's a wee mountain amongst uh, big mountains. I'm using the mount, the word mountain very uh, liberally here. But that actually is meant to instruct as well, or do you think that's just an accident of history? I don't know. I have to think on that. I really don't know. I think that for many of the writers and the editors, as they're putting these stories together, I think they probably noticed what God was intending to do while also enjoying it and drawing it out. Hmm. And I think that both were probably at play that they thought, oh, yeah, we could kind of tie this into everything else. And I don't want to make too much of the geographical locations, but then I also don't want to underappreciate their symbolism. So I don't know. I'd have to give it some thought, Drew. That's a really good I, question. I, I like that phrase. They were enjoying it and drawing it out, right? Uh, that, mm-hmm. that just shows their appreciation to the to the location. I think that's what this 
book series that you you've given us is it's uh, appreciating that this happened in a real time and space uh, mm-hmm. with real people who did go down in valleys and had to like come up on the other side, mm-hmm. had to uh, live that life. Um, I even think of communion as is locked into this location as well, because like you don't grow grow grapes everywhere in the world, right? Um, mm-hmm. Bread bread is everywhere, but uh, grapes are you know, and wine is uniquely tied to this region of the world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, what if you could have added? So I I see you have mountains, valleys, sticks, and stones. Are there other ones that aren't besides these that are? Yeah, there's two more sinners and saints. Oh, so, so I focus on some character types okay. in the New Testament. <laughs> you can't just drop us. Wait, is is that one each? One sinners and one saints. Yeah. Oh wow. Really fun. Okay. So sinners is about folks who may have been viewed socially as sinners, air quotes, and that evidence a lot of faith in God and kind of stand out in their story of wow, even the Samaritan got it. Or, wow, mm. the Canaanite, you know, mom. Wow, she seems to really be getting it. Oh wow, tax collectors repenting. Wow, didn't you know? Wasn't expecting that. And then saints is about uh, religious leaders that sometimes do doofus things yeah. that you think, man, I thought they would have gotten it, yeah. you know, I, and not to say that they didn't get it eventually, but it, that one was really fun to look at how um, God, I think God intentionally included some really layered characters that are very complex because we are complex. But oftentimes when I read the New Testament, I think, Ugh, villain, bad guy. And again, it's my son teaching me. He asked, um, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Is Anakin Skywalker a good guy or a bad guy? Mm. I'm like, well, that's a really good question. Um, You know, because Peppa the Pig, all those children programming, they're teaching kids that there's good people and there's bad people. And now we're having to do the hard work when we come to the scriptures to go, okay, Nicodemus isn't all bad. You know, Judas is a really complex character. So that's Pharisees, what I Pharisees, not all bad. Some of them not good. Not all bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, it's funny you say that because I think like, okay, children we teach, and, and as they used to say in, the, in, or they say in the UK, goodies and baddies. Um, and, and then the only other place you hear that kind of language is in the military. Like, so when mm-hmm. you're in a combat zone, good guys, bad guys, like you just got to mm-hmm. make who you're going to shoot at basically distinctions yeah. and the police, good guys and bad guys. Um, yep. so it's funny, like these are very extreme situations, children who just need to be able to like stay safe. And then, uh, it's really mm-hmm. safety issue kind of things. And yet mm-hmm. we drag that mentality to the text. Mm-hmm. And I always say when I read the gospels for the first time, uh, Jesus is the roundest character in literary history because I could never guess what that guy was going to like. Every time someone never. came up to him, I was just like, let's, What's here we go. Happen? Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I remember getting to the end of like two after the second gospel going like, I still cannot guess what this guy's going to do. Um, yep. Uh, which makes him so fun and riveting. And now actually, now that I know the Torah pretty well, I'm like, ah, I wouldn't have been able to guess it, but it's so Torah what he's doing, right? Yeah. Um, and how he oh, that's world. such a Jesus juke right there. I love it. Yeah. It's just, you're like, you really, cat. you need to study the Torah a whole lot more. <laughs> uh, well, it's it just, you know, it illuminates so much of what's going on in Jesus's teaching and, and, and mm-hmm. honestly, his action as well. Um, so if, if these books that you're, you're uh, producing, if they could do one thing, what's like the, what's the, the main goal? 
Um, yeah, was, we talked about it right before we hit record. I mean, the win and the prayer that I've been praying for 18 months, it gets, I get emotional every time, Drew, is that this could be holy curiosity for someone, that someone would pick it up, even if they disagree with it, and go, I need to go back and reread. And the goal would be if someone reads about mountains, and then every single time they sing about it in church, they read about it in the Psalms, they find a story with the word mountain, they find themselves climbing a mountain, walking a mountain, looking at a mountain, every single time would be a connection point back to God and to go, wow, that is Mm. awesome. His storytelling is so interesting. I want to get back in. So that's really the win. And I think and I hope that it may be a new way for people to look at the scriptures. And I think it's for a lot of ministry leaders could be some resources to support the work in the local church, to support the work with other leaders that they're developing, to say, let's let's follow a rabbit trail for a second mm-hmm. and get creative and start imagining what might be a part of these stories I think it will really broaden people's perspective, and that's that's how I'm praying. Yeah. Well, I think we just have to be deadly honest here that um, the American imagination doesn't really want to to do the due diligence of reading scripture closely and being entranced by it. Uh, they really, I mean, there is they're happy to have a caricature, even Christians, they're happy to have a caricature of all of these things, theologically and otherwise, and to move on down the road. So I think you know, if nothing else. This creates uh, a sense of excitement of, oh, there's all this stuff in here I never realized was tied together in these ways. Uh, And I think once you have those realizations, then you realize, oh, there's even more. And this is kind of nonstop. Well, uh, Kat Armstrong, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom in guiding us through this form of Bible study. Thanks, Drew. Appreciate it. Good talking with you. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast. Exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.